Hi, and welcome to our first episode of Go With Nugget. Go With Nugget is a brand new travel podcast for parents by parents. My name is Ranyana Armstrong, and I am one of your hosts. I'm a mom of two boys, soon three, and I live in Brooklyn, New York. I've traveled to more than 30 countries, many of them with my kids. I am also the founder of Nugget, a global travel community for parents to share and discover travel itineraries. And I'm super excited to be here with you today. If I am not around, my fellow travel mom, Veronique Langlois-Kinsey, will share with you our nuggets of advice for your perfect family vacation. So here's what you can expect on this show. In each episode, we talk to local parents or experts about an incredible destination that offers meaningful experiences for parents and kids alike. We'll discover first-hand recommendations for unique things to do, places to stay, foods to try, and how to navigate the destination with kids in tow. We'll also share all the nuggets of advice you need for your perfect family vacation. Our goal is to inspire families to explore the world together with their kids. And we want to make travel planning easier for everyone. So whether you are actively planning a vacation or looking for ideas for your next trip, this podcast will fuel your family's wanderlust. And it will show you what's possible together, both near and far. For our very first episode, we are super excited to introduce you to one of my favorite places in the world, Namibia. Many parents, including many in our Nugget community, are dreaming about taking their kids on an African safari. But realizing that dream often seems unattainable. Parents are intimidated by the cost and complexity in planning such a trip. Will it be safe? When are my kids ready for it? These are just a few of the questions I've heard over and over. So I sat down with Chris Liebenberg, a dad of two boys who grew up in Namibia and who just returned from another trip there with his family. Together, we want to show you why Namibia is an incredible country for families. And we want to share some tips on how to explore it on your own. Chris really knows Namibia inside out. Before he moved to the U.S. and became a dad, he worked in the tourism industry in Namibia for decades. He was a tour guide, he ran camps, and he was involved in some amazing conservation projects. Today, Chris runs Piper and Heath, a travel agency in San Diego that specializes in African safaris. And many of his clients are families. Plus, he has visited his home country numerous times with his own kids. So in today's episode, Chris is sharing his favorite spots for families, the best places to stay, and how to navigate Namibia with kids. You'll find even more details on our episode page. So when you're done listening, head over to www.nugget.travel forward slash podcast for more in-depth advice. And if you like the show, please subscribe and leave us a review. That will help us rise to the top page and help us help more parents with their vacation planning. We know planning a family trip can be time-consuming and stressful. We're here to make your life as a parent a little easier. 
Okay, now let's talk to Chris about Namibia and why it's awesome for families. Hi, Chris. Welcome. Hi, Ranyana. How are you? I'm well. How are you doing? Good, good. So we're super excited to have you on the show today and talk about Namibia for families. And before we dive into the show, I would love to talk a little bit about you and your background, because you actually grew up in Namibia, and now you actually also work a lot in Namibia. So tell us a little bit more about you, your family, your background, and the kind of trips you take. Right, right. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I uh, was born and raised in Namibia. My family have actually been in, in Africa uh, since 1687. They arrived as French Huguenots to South Africa. Oh, wow. Um, and then uh, have spent a lot of time moving all around the continent. My great-grandparents arriving into Namibia, and, and that's where I was born. I went to school in Cape Town, which was pretty common uh, at that time, but professionally uh, worked in, in Namibia all of my adult life as well. Interestingly, that is also where I met my wife, Emily, who was uh, on safari in Namibia, in the Skeleton Coast, and I was her guide. We met there. Emily ended up moving to Namibia, um, and we spent years managing camps and guiding safaris. But that is why I ended up moving to the United States 15 years ago from Namibia, and then started a travel company here called Piper and Heath Travel 10 years ago. And yeah, we, um, we do send a lot of people to Namibia. We operate across the continent, but Namibia is definitely one of our specialties and something I like to think we're sort of recognized for. We have, uh, we have two boys, Bryce and Brett, uh, who travel very extensively, both here in the United States, as well as in Africa. Both of my boys went to Africa before their first birthdays as was mandated upon my immigration. Uh, and they've been to Africa multiple times since then, visiting many countries. That's amazing. I mean, what a great opportunity to have as a child. And how old are you, you boys? So Brett just turned four, Bryce is, is seven. Perfect, because I think that was something that I think a lot of listeners are always wondering, what is the right age to take kids to Africa? And especially once you do safaris, so maybe before we dive into this, let's talk about that a little bit. Like, what's your thought on what's the right age? I mean, clearly you've taken your kids before they were even out of diapers. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think uh, up until probably around age four, it's probably more of a selfish endeavor. I think that big ambitious trips with our kids before that age is something that we're doing more for ourselves. I, I do think that there are some intrinsic parts of the experience that is that is sort of retained but until they reach about age four uh, you know not not a lot remains but at about that age having watched my own kids it, it becomes real to them i would even argue that you know maybe if if six or seven is ideal i would even argue that you want to try and do your first big trip before too long so if six is maybe an ideal age five or six is an ideal age to get going I wouldn't wait much beyond sort of 10 or 11, perhaps, because then if we haven't laid down the groundwork by then, it becomes a bit of a challenge. Everyone here in my office has traveled with their kids. And so we've had children traveling with various ages as well as uh, clients of ours. And it seems that, you know, maybe between seven and 12, if I had to put my finger on an ideal 
range. I think that might be it. So, so let's talk about Namibia. Why should families come to Namibia? What is it that families will fall in love with? What will kids love? What will parents love about the country? You know, I think that Namibia is arguably the most diverse destination in Africa. It is not sort of uh, monochrome in its delivery. Most of safari-centric Africa, if we think about Zimbabwe, Botswana, Zambia, Kenya, Tanzania, there's this overarching focus on just the pursuit of wildlife. In Namibia, the pursuit of wildlife is only one component of what we do, but we also have this incredible landscape component. We have this incredible cultural component and a high degree of adventure as well. So it's, it's a much more diverse destination, in my opinion, and one that can cater to, to travelers who need to be engaged and change things up, as we know kids are. It's a very tactile destination. It's an incredibly safe country to travel in, fantastic infrastructure, considered to be one of the best infrastructures in Africa, both from a communications as well as a road infrastructure. So this diversity, this ability to get out of the bubble, engage with people, engage with the land, makes it a wonderful destination for families. It's largely devoid of malaria. It's a very dry country. There's very few bugs around. You have a population there that is superbly dedicated to you as the traveler having a good time. Just to give you a few quick stats about Namibia that might illuminate that, almost half of Namibia's surface, and it's two and a half times the size of California, almost half of the surface is dedicated to wildlife conservation. But more than half of that is actually communal land, non-government, non-national park. And that's where the majority of our wildlife exists. That's incredible, because I, I think I also read that Namibia is one of the few countries that put preservation and conservation in their constitution, right? Correct. Namibia was the, the very first country, and I believe as yet the only, to have biodiversity protection written into its constitution. But very importantly, it has it connected to the wise utilization of the natural resources to the benefit of the people. Which is incredible. Exactly. It's, it's a unique view to conservation. Namibia is, a, is an experiment and as yet is proven to be successful in the African model of community-based natural resource management. Can we give over land and wildlife to local communities and expect them to protect uh, and eventually derive benefit, financial and otherwise, from this natural resource? And in Namibia, we're doing that extremely successfully. But what that means for you as the traveler is that the people you meet, not just in camps, but people in post office or a gas station, are all very concerned with you having a good time. And so the feel-good factor of being in the country is quite exceptional. Yeah, I remember from having been there a few times myself, the people are just so warm and welcoming and friendly. And yeah, it, it's been it's been incredible. And, and would you say that Safaris definitely, people always immediately think it's going to be expensive. Would you say that Namibia is also appealing for families because it is more affordable or you can at least have a more affordable experience than, let's say, if you're going to Botswana, which is probably one of the more expensive and luxurious experiences when you think about the classic safari? 
Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I, I think that what we find in Namibia is that we have a much broader range. Let's use Botswana as an example. Botswana is very focused on high dollar, low volume, high end, high luxury tourism. And it has certainly gained a reputation for being expensive. It's interesting to note that like for like, Namibia's lodges to their equivalents in Botswana um, are also about similarly priced. So at that level, we have a comparison that is equal. However, in Namibia, we have an offering that covers a much broader range. It's got a lot to do with how you move around because you can self-drive in Namibia. And I've sent recently single moms with their children on safari a number of times. It's an easy country to self-drive in. You can move around in groups. There are small group tours, larger group tours. There are even family-specific group tours that we offer. Or you can do a flying safari. And how you move around the country will determine the cost. Flying is expensive in Namibia because it is a big country. And so, yes, I think that Namibia has an offering at a lower price point that makes it more affordable while still being rewarding. And I would maybe take that a step further and say that the more affordable options in Namibia are, in my opinion, more rewarding than a more affordable option in a country where you're kind of uh, squeezing it out, so to speak. If you try and do a, an inexpensive trip in an area that has a poor infrastructure, there are very real challenges that come to play. You can do that in a country like Namibia because the infrastructure is forgiving in that regard. Yeah, and I think we're, we're going to dive into that a little bit more as we're moving around the country. Because, again, from, I think, my first trip to Namibia, and I've, I've been a few times, I remember some of the campsites that we stayed at. They were just incredible, and, and they cost almost nothing. And it just a view was spectacular. So why don't we talk a little bit about if somebody's planning a trip with their family, where should they start? And what are the different regions that they should consider visiting? So obviously, they most likely going to end up flying into the capital city. So let's talk a little bit about Vintok. Like how much time should families spend there? What can they expect? And then where should they head from there? Yeah, so, so Vintok is, a, you know, is an interesting little city. It's quite a small city by most standards about a quarter million people that live there. And it's considered to be one of the cleanest, most well-organized cities in Africa. And any time we, spend, we think about spending a lot of time in a city in Africa, it sort of goes against the grain a little bit because we want to be out in the wilderness. And that's still true for Vintok. I wouldn't you know, suggest spending three or four days there. Uh, you should at least spend one night there. You can certainly spend two nights. Maybe if you're doing a self-drive itinerary, it's good to spend two nights in, in Vintok to both familiarize yourself with the vehicle, get supplied, you know, make sure that you've got everything that you need before you start your, your journey into the wilderness. Lots of little places to stay. There's a Hilton Hotel, for example. But the magic of Africa, but I think especially the magic of Vintok, probably lies with the more boutique little guest houses, and there's loads of them spotted around all over the place. The Olive Grove is one of my favorites in terms of a boutique. There is a new hotel that just opened up called Am Weinberg, A.M. Weinberg. And what makes Am Weinberg especially good for families is that it has five dining options as part of the hotel complex. But also, it has these very cool studio rooms 
with a two-level room. Downstairs, there's a pull-out sleeper couch, which comfortably can sleep two kids. And then you go up a spiral staircase to the master bedroom upstairs. So it's a great little setup for a family of, of four or even five if the youngest is still a, a toddler. Vintuk itself has a couple of good places to eat. There's some good shopping to be had there. And you can certainly consider doing a tour of uh, the township area outside of town for a sort of an introduction into the cultural melee that is Namibia. Uh, we had a family that traveled a year or two ago who we set up because it was one of the, they were twins actually, and it was their birthday. So we set up a birthday party in the township outside of the city and had a big party with clowns and balloons and bouncy castles and all of that kind of stuff. But we set it up there at a local orphanage. And none of these kids had had a birthday party before in their lives. And so it was an opportunity for this family to share their celebration with 30 other children that wouldn't have had that opportunity. And it became this big shared birthday party. It was fantastic. Yeah, so there's always opportunities like that in Namibia. We, we would just you know, reach out in advance and find out what people's, people's needs are. That's amazing. And any food options, like any restaurants that you feel like families traveling, they should definitely not miss if there's something specific. I'm guessing that once we're out of the city, the options of for food are going to get very slim quickly and you're probably barbecuing most of the time yourself. So what kind of food should they try at least once when they are in the capital city? Yeah, there's a, there's a little place called, it's changed names between Mama's Cafe and the Marmite Cafe. But we can talk a little bit about food to start off with in, in more general terms, because I certainly feel this pain. <laughs> I'm extremely open-minded when it comes to food. Having grown up in Africa, you eat what's, you eat what's being put on the table. And, and so I'm very open-minded when it comes to food from the top down and from the bottom up. And it, it's always been my hope that my kids would be the same. My wife, by comparison, hopefully she won't listen to this, is an extremely picky eater. And um, unfortunately, uh, my children have become very picky eaters too. They just, you know, pasta with butter and parmesan cheese is, is sort of the norm. You can decide to have that battle or you can, you can decide to make it easy. What I will say about Namibia, having just returned again with my, with my boys, is that if you communicate accurately to people what your wants are, they will cater to your needs. Uh, and that's important to understand. So for the adventurous eaters, Vintuk is, is a place that's going to have a very cosmopolitan feel about it. It's, it's not actually the place, perhaps, to pursue the traditional. You can go German at Joe's Beer House. There's a Portuguese, uh, there's a, a Chinese uh, place. So there's sort of a, a big mix. There's a Cape Town cafe at um, Weinberg that's very good. And so for Vintuk, I'd say the more traditional, as for Swakopmund, um, would probably be some sort of a German fair. You know, maybe a place like Joe's, which is very good for that. And there's also, as I said, a Portuguese place called Oportuga. The Portuguese influence on Vintuk is quite established because Angola, the immediate neighbor to the north, used to be a Portuguese colony. Oh, interesting. I had no idea. So um, since we are talking food, what would you say are more traditional dishes that are accessible to people visiting? And again, for, for families who have maybe more adventurous eaters or where the parents at least want to try it, what kind of food do you feel like the things that they should definitely try? In the historical context, 
African food is not particularly exotic, and I have to admit, not particularly exciting. Our staples are things like maize, which is corn porridge, and, and then some very sort of spinach-like rudimentary vegetables. And so across the continent, we see that repeated. There are places that have influences to that, places like Zanzibar, and Cape Town. We see where an outside influences kind of change things up a little bit. So in the traditional African context, traditional food is not something that is particularly heavily pursued. In Namibia, if you're thinking about eating traditionally, you are going to want to have some of that maize. We call it pup. And you can find that many places. And it's generally served as a side dish in, in most of the lodges, just so that you have the opportunity to try it. But Namibia is also a big cattle farming country. And so meat in Namibia plays a bigger role even than it does anywhere else in, in Africa. Even in South Africa, we don't have meat consumption at the level that we enjoy in Namibia. I'm an absolute carnivore as a result of that. But it's important to note because you're going to be running into it a lot. And you're also potentially going to be running into venison, game meat, because again, in Namibia, that's considered the norm. So if you're thinking about trying something local, I would say the pup is a big one, but then also venison. Um, now, of course, some people don't eat meat, and some people who will eat meat will not eat venison, and don't ever feel forced into it. Because you asked me, there is one delicacy in the country that I will mention that very few people will ever try, <laughs> and not to gross anyone out, but there is a caterpillar that is widespread, especially in the northern part of the country, called the Mopani worm. I remember that. You do remember Mopani, okay. I did not try it. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's pretty unique. But it, 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 it comes out in huge quantities just after the first rains, massive quantities. It becomes an absolute protein dump. Historically, it's been critically important, obviously, for birds and wildlife, but also for, for the people. And certainly as a young person and even as a, a young adult working out in the field in Itasha National Park or up on Avambo land, it's something that we ate. It can be made to be quite fun. If you deep fry anything, you can eat it, I always say. But historically, it's eaten in its raw state, which is decidedly less palatable. <laughs> All right, we'll add that information to our episode page. And for the very adventurous people, maybe we can even put a link there where they can try this. Um, get, get some upon you. Yes. Yeah. So, okay, so after you arrived in winter, you got your car, you got situated, you fill up with supplies. Mm -hmm. Where do you suggest families go next? The best way to view Namibia is to treat it like a bit of a story. And it's important to bring that analogy into place because sometimes we'll have folks who, who will consider going to Namibia as an add-on. I'm going to South Africa, I'll add four days to Namibia. Or I'm going to Botswana, I'll add four days to Namibia. Namibia does not work very well as an add-on because it is a story. If I gave you a novel and you read chapter four and 11, you could appreciate that the writing is very good, but you're not going to understand the story. And it wouldn't make sense to you. And that's how we view Namibia. You need to read enough of the story for it to make sense. So I always sort of look at it as a, as a clock. And we start in, in Vintuk, and then we sort of run clockwise from there. So we'll head south to start with. Now, there's huge areas of the south. There's the Kalahari, which is distinct from the Namib. Um, one of the very, very few mistakes that Attenborough ever made was um, uh, making a movie about the Namib Desert, but continually 
referring to it as the Kalahari. So the Namib Desert is distinct from the Kalahari Desert. The Kalahari in Namibia sits in the southeast, whereas the Namib takes up the entire western part of the country. So you have the Kalahari, you have the Fish River Canyon, you have the Orange River, and you have the town of Ludris. That's sort of the main key points of the south. I'm going to skip over those a little bit because you really want to focus on those only if you have an extended period of time, three, four weeks. Because as we prioritize destinations, those are going to be a little bit lower on the totem pole, if you will. Uh, I will just quickly touch on the Orange River, because the Orange River has an opportunity for you to do family canoe safaris, virtually unrestricted by age. And you can have a very real, very remote, true wilderness adventure for four days on the Orange River. And that could be a good way to kick things off, certainly. How do those work for somebody that has never even heard of the idea of taking a boat in Africa to go on a safari? Just really quickly, because I've been on the traditional is it Mokoro up in the Caprivi. So just describe really quickly. So somebody who's not familiar with that at all, what can they expect? Sure, sure. So this was actually my very first tourism job. Uh, was a canoe guide on the Orange River. And so we use a canoe style called a Mohawk canoe or a Canadian canoe. You've seen them before. Okay, so not the traditional ones. <laughs> no. And you would be hosted by a local guiding team. So you arrive, they have all of the equipment, they have the boats. You arrive there, you spend a night at base camp. The next morning you jump in the canoes and, and you get going and you can do three or four days on the river. They have all the food, they do all the cooking, you sleep rough. You can take tents with you, but there, most of the time, we just sleep out in the open. It's an area called the Richtersfeld. There's virtually no wildlife to be concerned about there. There's virtually no bugs. So you just sleep on a sleeping mat on the, on the side of the river. It's one of the most magical uh, and, as I said, sort of most authentic adventures that you can have there. The river is only graded as a, as a class uh, two. It's not very challenging canoeing. There's a few minor rapids. Uh, they all have easy porterage if anyone doesn't want to run them. And so a very forgiving, forgiving river. So a great way to be out in the wilderness, the truly remote wilderness. To the best of my knowledge, you know, no age restriction. I think anyone over the age of six. So pretty accessible. What do you see? I mean, you mentioned there is no wildlife to be worried about as far as safety, but what wildlife do you experience? Or is it more an, the experience of canoeing and being in nature? It's absolutely a wilderness experience. So you're exploring some absolutely fascinating geology as you, as you go along. There's a bit of bird life, but really the allure is that you're out in a remote wilderness with no cell phones, no roads, no televisions, no electronics. It's just unplug and disappear for three or four days. And for, for like the truly adventurous families, could somebody, if they had a pack raft, do it themselves? Or do you advise against that? You theoretically can, but you'd have to be extremely well prepared. And I'm talking from personal experience here. Well, put it this way, I don't think there are any laws in place to stop you from doing that. You don't need a permit to operate on the river. Obviously, you do if you want to be a commercial outfit. Um, so theoretically, but, but I, would, um, I would advise against it. There are some very real hazards. For example, the guides would always travel with satellite phones and importantly know who to call. Um, so the, the other issue is that you'd still need someone to pick you up at the end. Yes. That could be a challenge. Very good point. You don't want to walk that back. So we talked about 
the south of Namibia, the southeast, really something if you have a lot of time, if you're spending three, four weeks. Correct. So for somebody who has, let's say, maybe 10 to 14 days, which for, I think, an American family is still a very luxurious amount of time, Europeans probably could get away with three to four weeks. Where do you suggest, so we, we I guess, going to clock, would we go west? So I, I think the key place to start is an area called Sossusvlei, which is in, in the Namib Desert. Uh, if you type in Namibia, to the Google browser and you click images, chances are a lot of what you're going to see, the most of what you're going to see is an area called Sossusvlei. And it's an area that is home to a very particular coming together of visuals. We have the world's tallest sand dunes in this beautiful red ochre pastel colors. We have these white pans or flays, dead flay, Sossusvlei, Cessna pan, hidden flay. And then we have these half a century old dead uh, skeletons of camel thorn trees, acacia trees. And these things come together in a, in a very sort of surrealistic landscape, a sort of Salvador Dali type landscape that is extremely visual. It's been the, the site of you know, movies and fashion suits and uh, all kinds of photographic endeavors. It's also a giant playground a great introduction to the Namib Desert. The beauty of the Namib is that the Namib is the natural world simplified. We have all of the, all of the normal systems, the predator-prey, food source relationship that we see repeated all across Africa. We have that present there, but in a microscopic, simplistic form. And so it's a great way to not just introduce you to the interconnectivity of species and wildlife, but also an introduction to the Namib. So you have a place that's incredibly visual, exciting to travel in, and it's an out-of-the-vehicle experience. You're playing and running in the sand and climbing sand dunes. And so for kids, it's, it's incredible. They can be out there chasing lizards and learning about dancing white lady spiders and play in the sand. It's a giant sand pit. So that's an obvious place for me to, to start. It's, it's visually very impressive. It's considered sort of one of the iconic areas in the country and a good place to start. Yeah, and I, it's actually one of my favorite places in the world because, as you said, the, the landscape is absolutely stunning. The colors are surreal throughout the day. I mean, if you go into the desert before sunset and you see it changing from this very delicate purple and pink to this glowing orange when the sun is really high up in the sky, it, it's pretty cool. And the animals, I mean, there's it's not a super high density, but you actually see quite the variety of animals, which is which is neat. Where would you suggest if somebody does a self-driving safari, if they want to experience this, what's like what's a good place for families to to stay? Is it the campsite inside the park? There's a huge benefit to to staying inside the park because you can leave an hour before sunrise and be in Sources Flay for sunrise, which is a key experience. And there's only two places you can do that. You either are camping rough uh, at the campsite at Sesrim, or you can stay at the government's uh, lodge, which is called Sosa's Dunes Lodge, which is a perfectly adequate place to stay. And so if you're a guest at Sosa's Dunes Lodge, again, you get to leave an hour before sunrise. So those are the two places that stand out for me because you get to leave early. As far as accommodations outside of the park, Probably my favorite for a family would be a place called the Kulala Desert Lodge. 
Uh, and now again, I am biased. I started the Kulala Wilderness Reserve, but we do have a private gate that we negotiated there. So when you're a guest at Kulala, you can get into the park at a private gate. So you don't have to kind of join the, the melee at the entrance because it can be, get a little bit crowded and it always seems bizarre to be in you know, the second least densely populated country in the world and then be standing in the middle of the, the desert in a traffic jam. <laughs> so I would avoid accommodations that force you to use the public gate in the morning. And um, since we talked sunrise being a critical part of the experience, obviously the heat is something else not to underestimate. So any advice, especially with kids, How much time are you realistically spending in the desert before you want to retreat back to the shade? Yeah, it depends a lot on the on the time of year. I mean, April, May, June, July, even the midday temperatures are pretty forgivable. If you're traveling between October and February, the summers are brutally hot. And so by 11 a.m., we could be pushing 100. So you're going to be, want to be sensitive about when you travel, especially for, for kids. Our big challenge is just keeping everyone hydrated. So that's the key challenge. Yeah, and I think that's that's probably a good piece of advice in general is to make sure your family's hydrated and always have sufficient supply of water in your car because you just never know if you break down or something happens, you want to have a lot of water in the car. Exactly. What I did on the trip that we were just on because it was a little warm, I would start the day for everyone with a rehydrate tablet. Uh, and, and that seemed to make a huge difference for us. That's a great tip. Okay, so Sussoufle, definitely must, on every visit, must see. So where to next? So then from there, the next stop is probably the coastal town of Swakopmund, which if you're on a flying itinerary, you can skip. But if you're moving by road, it's as far as you can get in a day anyway. It's an interesting little town. If Sussoufle is uh, surrealistic and like a Salvador Dali painting, then Swakopmund is like an episode of The Twilight Zone. It's this little German town that seems like it was airdropped into the desert. <laughs> And uh, so you have, you know, some of the world's best Apfelstrudel is served there, for example. <laughs> And um, fantastic seafood. This is probably the primary foodie destination in Namibia is Swakopmund, especially seafood. The Atlantic produces some of the finest seafood in the world, not the least of which oysters. Interesting. And so Swakopmund is a place that you can stop and explore, do a bit of shopping. There's a few coastal activities like fat biking and ATVs. You can also do some sea kayaking and boat trips to go look for some of the rarer marine life. There's heavysides, dolphins, there's the mola mola or sunfish. And so it's an interesting sort of a marine destination. Before we continue our tour with Chris, let's pause for a second. Swakopmund is not only a fun marine destination nestled between the Atlantic Ocean and the Namib Desert, it's also the place of our first ever kids podcast. You heard right. In addition to Go With Nugget for parents, we also have an amazing travel show for kids with kids. It's called Go With Nugget Kids. And in each episode, we talk to a local kid about what it's like to grow up where they live so that your little one can learn about different countries and cultures firsthand from another child, someone who speaks their language. 
so to speak. So when you are done listening to this episode, search for Go With Nugget Kids and listen with your entire family. Now back to Chris, who's going to introduce us to his favorite part of Namibia, Damaraland. Yeah, so then we head into the northwest of Namibia, which for Namibians, we consider this our, our pride for many reasons. The northwest is extremely picturesque, but it's also home to some of the most incredible, unbelievable conservation success stories in Africa. It is an area where megafauna, big desert elephants, desert rhino, lions, cheetahs, leopards, giraffe, zebra, where these big animals we normally associate with lush green environments, where they exist and survive, again, almost unbelievably. And so it's a place where survival is pushed right up to the, right up to the edge. And there's a wonderful conversation and consideration to be had at that place. When you're in Botswana, you know, you see hundreds of elephants every day. In Damaraland, you could pursue a family of elephants for an entire day. But the joy of finding them and the process of looking for them makes it a far more engaging experience. It's definitely a place where you wouldn't be going on safari trying to find them on your own, right? You would need an experienced guide to help you find them because there aren't a lot of those elephants. Correct. Yeah, you definitely need the, the guidance of a local. So you would be staying at a lodge that offers uh, you guided, you know, pursuits of the wildlife, or perhaps if you're on a, on a group tour, the guide who's taking you around through the country would have the, the knowledge and the experience to go and, and, and find the wildlife for you. There's many lodges in this area. Some are exclusively flying. Some are exclusively for small groups. Some are uh, you can drive to. It's a, it's a massive area with many, many options. Some of the, the most authentic camping wilderness experiences that you can have with the guide uh, in all of Africa is up in the northwest of Namibia, where you can be out for a week and not see a single other human being. Just camping wild, tracking rhinos, looking for lions and desert elephants. and uh, it's, it's an absolutely incredible place, but it is a place that is fragile. And so as Namibians, we always mention that because we want people to be very respectful of this place. So when you're traveling on your own, you're very much sticking to the established routes. If you want to go beyond, you need an expert, a local expert showing you the way. I mean, you can send us some some ideas for people who want to venture that far and where to stay and who to reach out to if they want to have this kind of experience. And the region we're talking about is Damaraland, right? Correct. So there's there's sort of two... And a lot of the terminology here is evolving, but historically we referred to Damaraland and Kahokoland. And so the area in the far, far northwest, right up on the corner with Angola, that area is called Kahokoland, and then south of that is Damaraland. And for most of us, we recognize a river system called the Huanip, the Huanip River system, as being the dividing uh, you know, zone between those two. Okay, so we did talk about the desert elephants and amazing wildlife and um, having the chance to really get off the beaten track with a guide. If you 
are because I mean guides obviously are more expensive if you're really on a budget and you want to see animals and the next stop I'm assuming would be Atasha well I might say that even on a budget you know for example you can drive yourself to Sosusplay, drive yourself to Swakopmont, you can then drive yourself to a lodge in the Damaraland area. Grootberg uh, Lodge, Doronawa's Camp, Camp Mawani, Camp Kipwe. And you can book in on a DBB basis. So you, 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 you're buying your bed, uh, your breakfast and your dinner. And then you can add a, just one excursion. You can say, during our stay here, I would like to take a morning game drive with your guides to go and look for desert rhino so you can do that and then there's one other option worth mentioning okay you can also go to an area called palambach lodge a lodge called palambach lodge which is the headquarters for the save the rhino trust save the rhino trust is a local ngo and you can book a excursion with the save the rhino trust uh, and then join those trackers as they go about their morning patrols, and their patrols are in pursuit of rhino, to go and find the rhinos, see them, make sure that they're in good, in good hands. So you can do that, for example, at the Desert Rhino Camp. You can do it from Palambach Lodge. And that's a, that's a really good way, because now you're contributing to conservation by spending money with Save the Rhino Trust, but you're actually also you know, probably finding the most affordable way to be in the hands of experienced and capable people in this wilderness looking for that rare desert-adapted wildlife. Oh, amazing. And how old do kids have to be to, to join one of those tours? Because they're obviously not specifically designed for families. It probably varies a bit depending on, on where you're staying. But I would say that, you know, as long as the child is able to walk at a medium pace for a number of hours, then they're good to go. I would say that Bryce, my seven-year-old, would be able to do that. Okay, that's that's good because you're right. Every child is different. Okay, so that sounds amazing. So once my kids are old enough, I will certainly add this to the list of places. So we're now pretty much in the center north, right, of Namibia. That would be Itasha and the Ongava game. Yeah. So before we go to Itasha, there's probably one other important aspect of Kaukaland and Damaraland worth mentioning, and that's the cultural component. So. Oh yes, absolutely. <laughs> This, this area is, is home to an, a number of people. There's a particular group called the Rimfasmarker, which um, are a, a group of people that were forcibly removed during the apartheid era from fertile farmlands in South Africa and dropped off in the deserts of Namibia. And there's a whole history behind that. And they're overcoming all of these very significant challenges of being in this foreign environment and now calling Namibia home. There's also the Damara people, which are basically one of the very first inhabitants of Namibia. And then there's also the Ovahimba people. The Ovahimba people are, uh, again, if you search Namibia images, you're going to see a lot of pictures of the Ovahimba people. The Himba are a group that were part of that initial return migration. So out of the Ethiopian highlands, we had this huge movement of pastoralists, semi-nomadic pastoralists that moved with their cattle and sort of reoccupied Africa. I say reoccupied Africa because bipedal man became organized and upright in the deserts of southern Africa, the Kalahari, and, and then moved up north, and then the pastoralists moved back down. The Himba have their origins 
similar to the, the Maasai and the, and the Samburu and the Zulu and the Tosa. And they moved into Namibia and they were one of the pioneers of that movement. So they came down Ethiopia through Kenya, through Tanzania, have got into the Zambezi Valley, moved into the Okavango, across the Okavango, across Avomboland, and then ran into the ocean, came up to the Skeleton Coast, this place where <laughs> cattle can't live, turned around and found that the areas behind them were already occupied. And so while they were pioneers, they became a group that really lived on the fringe and have now for thousands of years perfected living in this desert. And they're a fascinating group of people who have shunned you know, Western trappings, uh, if you will, shunned Western religion, and have also shunned accommodations and clothes and, and all of those things. The Himba believe that if you want to live in the desert, what you own, you must be able to carry in one hand. They provide the opportunity for us to explore what I think is probably one of the greatest gifts of Africa for children, and that is the question of perspective. And so being able to spend time with the Himba and see this perspective, meet smiling, happy Himba kids who have nothing by our standards, no electronics, no clothes, uh, no toys, and are yet healthy and having the time of their lives. And have our kids engage in that is, um, I think, insightful and, and is a real opportunity for us as parents to give more than just a good holiday, but something a bit more meaningful. So between the Himba people and the Namara people and the Rimfas markers, who you will meet as you move through that area, there's a real cultural interchange that happens. On this trip that we just had, when we left our camp in Damaraland, we stayed at a place called the Juana Valley Camp. My kids were virtually in tears because they were devastated by the fact that we had to leave not this place, but these people. That's amazing. And I, I, I remember I saw a, a video of, was it Bryce? With um, all those little kids, the all the little Himba kids, the Himba village, yeah, and yeah. I think that's like the ultimate, you know, visual of what you just described. I mean, these kids look so happy, and you could see in your son, like this isn't an experience he's he's never gonna forget. And it was interesting to watch the, you know, my my oldest is he's a people's person, one hundred percent, and he's got this long blonde hair, so he's always a, a big attraction in Africa. And then my youngest, Brett. He's the animal guy. He's only interested with the baby goats. They were sort of day-old goats, these little, these little goat kids. And so he just zoomed in on that, and we couldn't get him interested in anything else. <laughs> he just wanted to hang out with the baby goats. But those are the types of experiences that make the trip. It's, at the end of the day, it's not about the room. It's not about the, how many elephants did I see. It's, those are the experiences that I think for families make Namibia so special. Yeah, no, I mean, we've already, I feel like, covered so many different aspects that are, are new to me, and I, I know will probably surprise some of our listeners, too, of the variety of experiences your family could have in, in this country. So, so let's, let's move on, because I know there's a couple more places that definitely should make the must-visit list. What's next after the Maraland with its amazing culture and interesting, unique wildlife? Yeah, so, so, so two more main things I want to discuss. Definitely the next one would be Itasha National Park and the private game reserves adjacent to the Itasha National Park. So a lot of times when we think about a Namibian itinerary, we end up not talking a lot about wildlife. And so the, the fear could be like, 
boy, are we actually going to see some, some good game? And this is really where Itosha comes in. And there are a number of private game reserves all around Itosha that are worth visiting and have good wildlife. And then there is the park itself, which is one of the largest and one of the oldest national parks in Africa, teeming with wildlife. There are wildlife sites, uh, wildlife densities, and a diversity of species that I would say rivals anything else. It's not going to be the wildebeest migration, but it's, it's the next best thing. You've never seen numbers of wildlife like you see in the dry season in Itosha National Park. I'm talking about 400, 500 animals standing at a waterhole at the same time. I've counted as many as 11 species of animals drinking at the same time. Uh, it's a pretty unique place. The private game reserves that surround it are an important component because in Itosha, it's a national park. So you can't be out after dark. You can't be out of the vehicle. There's no off-road driving in pursuit of wildlife. And so complementing your Itosha stay with a private game reserve where you can do those things is a really good combination. That's a really good to know. And um, at the beginning, you mentioned that one of the reasons Namibia is so great for families is the infrastructure. Correct me if I'm wrong, but Itosha, the national park itself, has a pretty good infrastructure, right? Like there's really well-marked system of roads, water holes, and then there's also a few options at least to stay within the park, which if your kids just get restless, because you probably don't want to be in the car for like 10 hours, that would allow you to pop back in, you know, have a break and then start again. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the camp, so there's, there's um, five accommodation options that are inside the park. All of the accommodations that are under the, the stewardship of the Namibian government fall under a, an organization called NWR, Namibia Wildlife Resorts. It's basically the hospitality wing of the, the Ministry of Environment and Tourism. And so that's a, you know, so the places inside Sosusflay and the Anditosha, that's where you would find those guys. But yes, it's, it's a very well set up park. I mean, my entire youth, I was born just the fir very first town south of Itosha. And my youth, all of my school holidays, that's what we did. We drove up to Itosha. We spent a week or two in the park, staying at the camps, you know, sitting at the water holes until two in the morning, uh, watching the rhinos come down to drink. It's a, it's, it's, it's a very, very special place. And how many days would you suggest spending here at a minimum? I would say you need about four days, minimum. Uh, you could probably get away with three. What a lot of folks will opt for is staying in a private game reserve outside the park, using that as the headquarters to explore the park. So what you would do is you would arrive the first day, sleep there the next morning, go spend kind of the day in Itosha, sleep again the next day, spend the day on the private game reserve, sleep and then go. Three days, I guess, would be the minimum. But if you have the time, four or five days, if you're combining two places, probably a minimum of five. So you could say do two nights at Namatoni Rest Camp and then three nights at the Ongava Game Reserve. Right, because it, I mean, it, it's a huge park. So if you want to see different ends, it's probably better to split your time at two different places than driving all the way back. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you, definitely worth covering some ground. Now, the time of year that you're traveling will dictate a bit of that because we have seasonal movements. With, Itosha is so big that we have seasonal migration within the park. And so, depending on when you travel, that will also determine perhaps on what you want to focus on. 
I, I do want to, as I just mentioned on Gava, I think I want to quickly just mention a very, very unique offering that's opening in two days' time. <laughs> a place called a place called Anderson's Camp. Uh, it's on the Ongava Game Reserve, which, without exaggeration, is one of the highest producing wildlife reserves in Africa. But what Ongava has done, thanks to investment from its board of directors, they've opened up this thing called the Anderson's Research Center. So it's a very unique offering in that it's a family-friendly safari lodge, but it is attached to a huge and active research and education center with resident scientists and resident researchers on site with labs and all sorts of equipment available to them, a resident research staff of around 20 people. If you follow that clockwise movement, by the time you get to Itosha, you've spent quite a lot of time in the wilderness and you might be getting to the point where you're beginning to dig deeper. You're asking questions. You want to know how the systems work and you want to understand how conservation works. And the Ongava Research Center is going to be a place where people can do that. They can sit down with scientists, people that are studying lions or beetles or grass seeds or whatever it is, and have dinner with them. You know, you could be sitting at the waterhole and have a veterinarian who's that morning was, you know, darted a rhino to remove an abscess, chat with him about rhino conservation. Trying to bridge the gap between just seeing and taking it into understanding. And we're doing this not purely with families in mind. I say we because I'm very invested in Ongava personally. It's where I, where I lived and worked for a long time. But the reason Ongava is doing this, it's, it's to, to, to help get travelers more involved in the big picture of conservation. That's a really good point you're making. And I think it's something that a lot of families these days are really craving that. It's not just about going and seeing, but it's really embracing it and, and your kids to have a chance to, you know, ask those deeper questions. Because they are curious. I mean, I'm already blown away by the questions my four-year-old asks. And I, I can't imagine what an eight or 10-year-old would take out of that opportunity of having that chance to, to chat up with somebody like that. Yeah, I think it's, it works better for children. <laughs> they're, they're better at learning than we are as adults, I think. And they're absolute sponges. And they ask good, insightful questions. I was a safari guide full-time for 15 years. And every guide I know would much rather have kids on safari than adults. Kids are, are, are better on safari than adults. They listen, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, for, the, for the most part. Uh, well, a, a big, scary safari guy generally gets them to listen. But they're sponges, and they know so much, and they don't have any preconceived ideas. And so they're, uh, they're a lot of fun to have on safari. That does bring us right into probably one of the last things I, I'd say and last places that I would want to mention because it's so significant in Namibia is cheetahs and cheetah conservation. Namibia is home to the majority of Africa's cheetahs, but almost exclusively living outside of national parks. And we have a couple of great NGOs that have become involved in cheetah conservation, but there's one that stands out, and that's an outfit called the Cheetah Conservation Fund. Now, the Cheetah Conservation Fund was started by Dr. Laurie Marker. They are housed, actually, the farms that make up CCF headquarters are actually my old family farms, fam farms that used to be in my family way back. And as a result, of course, the relationship between us is, is quite close. Laurie has become a, a good personal friend of mine. 
visiting CCF used to be a real challenge because it was really only for researchers and interns. But CCF has tried to make itself more approachable. And they opened a big education center for local kids to teach them about uh, livestock management and the plight of cheetahs. And they've also even built sort of some rudimentary accommodations. There's a little place called Cheetah View. And there's also a place called Babson House. And so you can stay on the reserve. It's almost more like being on a working farm than it is like a game reserve. And while at the same time having some of the some groundbreaking laboratories and veterinary services. So again, a very, very strong place to bridge the gap between observing and understanding. That sounds in- incredible. I mean, I think any any child that loves animals would love to do this. So we really, I mean, what you said earlier about the story, we really, we traveled a story through the country. I know this was the last spot that you wanted to mention. So this has been incredible. And um, we put all this information on our website so so you can check out the different tips and places that Chris has been mentioning. Should we talk a little bit more about just like logistics and questions families might have, such as the best time to go? We already touched on it a little bit when talking about Atasha and Namibia. But if you could just sum it up, um, what times of the year are good for for what type of experience and and then we can maybe go through some of the other questions parents might have as they're thinking about doing a self-driving experience of of Namibia. Yeah, I, I would say if you're tolerant of heat, you can go to Namibia any time of year. Now, if you can be in Arizona at, in midsummer and be happy, then you're going to be happy in, in Namibia. Uh, the midsummer temperatures will regularly go over 100. If you're trying to avoid heat, I would say from the beginning of April through to the end of, of September is very good. August is traditionally an extremely busy month in Namibia, and we have a lot of travelers from Europe, specifically Italy and France. And so hard to find space. The whole country sort of undergoes a little bit of, a, of a, a, an identity shift to welcome our European travelers. And so Namibia is a different country in August than it is in any other time of the year. And generally a time of year that I try and avoid, mainly because space is incredibly hard to find. So yes, I would say April through September is, is a great time of year to visit. There is ultimately a truth that the drier it is in Itosha, the better the game viewing is. But again, you also have to compete with the heat or be okay with the heat. And, and having said that, you can go to Itosha 12 months of the year and have a fantastic wildlife experience. And what about driving with kids? I mean, you just returned with your two boys. What tips do you have for people when you rent a car? Can you rent car seats or do you better bring them? And if you're joining a safari, how does that work? What, what should somebody expect? Because from what I recall, I don't think I've ever seen a car seat in a safari vehicle. So, yeah, car seats. So I've never had much success renting car seats um, from car rental companies, even in the United States. But in Africa, the, the, you know, just appreciate that the, the car seat conversation is a lot less serious there. The actual quality of the seats are a lot you know, less stringent than what we have here. So we take our seats with us. You are going to want to, if you take a booster, you are going to have to or want to get one, likely with a five-point harness. Not so much even just from a safety point of view, but... If you're traveling by road in Namibia, you're going to have long days in the car. And 
if they're not in a five point, then they sort of fall over themselves and they're, you know, lying half sideways in the vehicle. So I would take good seats with you. I know it's a bit of a pain, but, uh, you know, you check it when you take off and you pick it up when you land. So in the game drive vehicles, when you're out on safari looking for the wildlife, it's very slow paced. There are seat belts in most of the game viewers. Some of them don't have it. But I'll be honest with you, while we definitely had the kids strapped in properly while I was driving on the transfer drives between areas, on the game drive vehicles and things, we had them out of the seats. It allows them to stand up and stretch out. And you need to be careful and, and the guide needs to be conscientious and not break suddenly. But that's a quick conversation with both the driver and the kids. But you're driving very, very slowly. And so it's not like they need to be strapped in. And I think if they would be strapped in, I think that the tolerance for a multi-hour game drive would probably reduce pretty quickly. Yeah, that's that's a very good point. And and you mentioned long driving distances. So that's, I think, something any traveler to, to Namibia should be really mindful of. Like, what on average are, like, distances that you have to just account for that you be driving every day or every other day if you wanted to see all those places that we just talked about? Yeah, I think you could limit your driving on some days because obviously there's going to be big driving days and then you get to the destination, you settle down for a while and then you drive to the new destination and you settle down for a while. You're not going to get away with less than about five hours in the vehicle on the transfer days. So if you can't handle at least five hours, then a self-drive or road-based option is not going to work. The reality is that even a four-hour drive will become a seven or eight-hour day in the car because you're stopping, you're looking at this, there's a roadside stand, there's a village, there's a, a pickup game of soccer, <laughs> there's, um, you know, there's, there's all kinds of stuff happening. And so while your intention might be to, okay, we'll, you know, we'll leave at 10 and get there at 3, it's more like leave at 8 and get there at 5 because there's a lot happening on that day, as it should be. You want to be able to stop and explore and get out and stretch legs and that kind of thing. Right. And then just some general pointers on driving in Namibia, because that was certainly something I wasn't prepared for, because you have these roads that are just straight for miles and miles and miles, but a lot of them aren't paved. So you you, you get this false illusion that you can go pretty fast because it's just straight, but it's not a good idea. <laughs> right, right. So that's, that's our biggest challenge in Namibia when it comes to tourism and self-drives is that our roads are actually too good. And so what happens is we have the tarred roads, which are straight and obviously easy to, to navigate. But there's one big difference in that we don't have a lot of dual carriage. So it's you're driving right next to oncoming traffic, which a lot of American and European travelers are not used to that anymore um, because we spend so much time on freeways. And so passing vehicles and that kind of thing poses a danger. But probably the biggest danger is our secondary roads, our gravel roads, which are in excellent condition. And the locals drive very fast. So it's not uncommon, and, and I'm just as guilty of this because I grew up there. We've got massive distances. You know, we start driving when we're eight, nine years old. And so locals will be driving 140, 150 kilometers an hour on a gravel road where the car hire company is advising you to stay at 80. It becomes difficult because it seems like you're, it feels like you're driving very slowly. It feels like you have control of the car. Other people are, are flying past you. And so then you end up wanting to drive too fast. But without the 30 or 40 years worth of driving experience behind you, you can't. And that's where people slip up. They end up driving too fast. 
The rental cars all have satellite tracking in them. If anything happens to you when you're in your vehicle, they'll know, but also they'll know how fast you were driving. <laughs> and I always make that I always make that point to 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 folks. Yeah, and I mean with kids in a car, you definitely don't yeah. want to go too fast. Um, yeah. Speaking of satellite, is that something? Because I mean, it is a very remote country, and if you're planning on doing this big loop, you will be traveling for hours through areas where there's not a lot going on. Is that something you suggest that you have a satellite radio with you? Yes, you can rent a satellite phone very inexpensively as long as you don't use it. So to just to rent it and have it with you is pretty inexpensive, maybe like $150 or $100 a week or something. When you start using it, it'll become quite expensive. But of course, you're only using it in the event of an emergency. So you're okay. Exactly. Yeah. And, and anything else that families in particular should be aware of when traveling to Namibia that we haven't touched on? I mean, we I guess we haven't talked about anything animal related. Like I'm just picturing my kids turning over rocks. And I remember we saw some snakes when we were in Susu's Flay. So like in the Cesarium Canyon, any any precaution for, for parents on whether it's animals or anything else safety related? Yeah, I would say, you know, a lot of the time in the wilderness areas, you're probably going to be with guides. And so they'll give you the guidance that you need. But the wilderness rules would be the same wilderness rules that you would have here in the United States. So if you're Boy Scouts, you kind of know the rules. Or if you spend time in the deserts of the United States, or even in the wilderness areas uh, in the east, the common sense stuff. You know, don't, don't approach a snake unless you know <laughs> what it is. Don't, you know, don't approach dangerous animals. You're going to be, first of all, there's quite a lot of literature that's put in front of you to tell you what, what you should and shouldn't be doing. When you're international parks, there's a whole list of rules, do's and don'ts. And then again, you'll, you'll be with guides in, in any situations where those things are, are not there, like in Tomorrowland, for example. I consider Namibia, from that perspective, again, a very safe destination. The rules are well in place. Everyone knows what they are. It's, it's, it's not a place that you easily can land in trouble. You really would have to kind of go out of your way, I think. Add to that the fact that we don't have you know, much malaria or virtually any malaria or yellow fever or any of that stuff. It's a fantastic destination for, for children because we don't have to be adding a whole list of prophylaxis for them before the trip. This has been incredible. I feel like there's so much here that will make it so much easier for parents to plan a trip to Namibia. And, and hopefully we get some people um, inspired to give it a consideration and give it a shot. I, I know we've talked for so long already. Um, is there anything else you, you wanted to share as, as sort of parting words? No, I, th I think we've done well. My company, Piper and Heath, operates in, in 18 countries in Africa. Um, and we always look through this filter of who deserves our travel dollars. And we weigh that up when we help travelers pick a destination. And I would just argue that from a political, from an historical perspective, from a blood, sweat and tears investment by the the citizens of the country, by the government's commitment to conservation and security, you would have to search very hard to find a country as or more deserving of your travel dollars than, uh, than Namibia. I think that's a great ending point. And um, yeah, thank you so much, Chris, for, for joining us here. We, you know, we're going to put all your information in the show notes and on our website so families can track you down as well if they got inspired but don't quite feel up to the challenge of doing this all themselves. I know your team is, is incredible in helping plan these kinds of trips and 
I mean, you have two kids and a lot of the people on your team have kids, so I know families will be in good hands. I love Chris's passion for Namibia. I hope we get you inspired to visit Namibia as a family. And if you are already planning a trip, I hope we're able to answer your most pressing questions and simplify your planning process. If you know of anyone who might find this episode helpful, hit pause now and click the share icon and send them this episode. Also, if you're thinking about a trip to a completely different destination that you'd like us to cover, let us know. You can email us at podcast at nugget.travel or you can send us a note through our website. Just go to www.nugget.travel forward slash podcast and fill out the little submission form. We can't wait to share more of our favorite family destinations with you. Until next time.